welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Great. Great. Okay, waking up. Uh, my name is Jenna, if we haven't met. I am the newly appointed associate pastor here, which is... Oh, so exciting. Um, for those of you know, uh, who know me, I've been working in a call center for the last six years, so super life-giving work. Um, uh, so I'm, just, I'm so excited to be here and uh, to get to dream with all of you about Awaken and, and who we might be in God's kingdom. So it's great if you are joining us for the first time this morning. Um, special welcome to you. We have been in a series over the last couple months called Lost in Translation, where we have been looking at some of those difficult, tricky, maybe theologically complex passages. So first week we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and gender roles and all sorts of tricky things that we don't always have context for. Um, And really how we have been approaching that, uh, you can only do so much in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. And so the point of this is to start a conversation. Um, So that is what we are hoping to do. The passage this morning is no different. Uh, It is quite a doozy and it's a bit long. Um, So if you have your Bibles, you can open to 1 Kings 22, starting in verse 1. And if you are able, I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. For three years, there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people is your people, my horses is your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Canana, Canana, (laughs) I don't know if I said that right, um, had made iron horns and he declared, this is what the Lord says, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. 
But Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can only tell him what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd, and the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Pray with me. God, here we are, and here you are. You know how we come this morning. You know what we need. And so I ask that you would meet us there. In your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So what I want to start with this morning is why this text seems to be so difficult. Um, I can acknowledge that maybe for some of you hearing that, you're sort of like, what's, what's the issue? God has reasons for doing what God does. But it made me really uncomfortable. Because here's the thing. In this passage, it seems like God is lying. It seems like God is sending deceiving spirits to trick a man so that he dies. And that's the God that I serve. It makes me a little uncomfortable knowing that, that the God I know would exercise his power in that way. And on top of that, what do you do with the passages that talk about how God is truth and God is not deceitful and in him there are no shifting shadows, which makes him trustworthy. And yet he seems to be acting inconsistently here. And then on top of that, what do you do with the fact that this trickster god or this deceitful god is an attribute of ancient Near Eastern gods. And part of the Israelite story is that, that they serve this god that is distinct and unique and wants relationship and is good and calls them good. This god is trustworthy. And so for me, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times, for people of faith, when they say things like, God has reasons for doing what he does, but, but what if you don't already trust that God? Quite frankly, that response is not enough. And so as we begin, 
I would like to tease out a couple things in the passage that I think can help set up um, what is actually happening here, because I would suggest something else is happening, and this is less about God being deceitful. So I want to start with the book of Kings. Um, Put very simply, the book of Kings is a book about the kings of Israel. Learn that in seminary, friends. That's for free. Um, No, but it's fascinating. If you do ever have the opportunity to go through and read it, you will notice things like military elements and foreign relations and then these patterns that come up over and over and over again. So this, this phrase that you'll see, the king did evil in the eyes of the Lord or the king did good in the eyes of the Lord. But what I would say the key to the book of Kings is is actually the role of the prophet. The prophet is the one that drives the narrative. And so prophet is actually not unique to Israel. Um, Prophets were very common in other ancient Near Eastern cultures. Um, But for Israel, the role of the prophet uh, was to call the people back to faithfulness to Yahweh, to remind them of their purpose in existing, to remind them of the covenant. And so in Hebrew, the word for prophet is navi, and that simply translated as spokesperson. But there's another word that's also used, and that is roe. Roe comes from the root of to see. So you have this identity of a person who sees God and sees the people and then speaks to the distance between which is probably why they're so annoying, and which is probably why kings seek counsel to these prophets. So the king operates, again, as a leader of the people, calling them to faithfulness. They are expected to follow Torah, reminding the people who God is. And this prophet-king relationship um, helps them do that. And it's fascinating because throughout the entire book, the rise and the fall of kings are directly linked to their ability to hear the prophetic word of Yahweh. And so this prophet-king relationship is is key for us this morning in our passage. Um, The second thing I want to mention uh, is Ahab, and this person who actually isn't named in our passage till the end. Uh, He's called the king of Israel. And so if you do have your Bibles with you, otherwise it'll be on the screen, Go to 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 30. This is the first time we meet Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the other kings before him. So it seems that Ahab is a little confused about his role as king. He's creating temples for other gods. And so what I want to do is actually just follow this chunk of narrative about Ahab to kind of give you an idea of who this person is. So immediately following his introduction, we meet the prophet Elijah. So Elijah, if you remember, is the prophet that calls the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel, and he does this little showdown where 
if Baal is God, let him bring down fire. And if Yahweh is God, let him bring down fire. And so Yahweh wins and does the fire, and then he uh, kills the prophets of Baal. So there's that. Um, and the drought ends in, in Israel. And so what happens is after this showdown, Ahab and Jezebel are pursuing Elijah to kill him. Which again is a little awkward, keeping in mind that part of your job as king is to make sure that the people are being faithful. But you're trying to kill the ones who are speaking faithfully about Yahweh. And then the passage right before, Ahab goes to a kind man named Naboth with a vineyard. And he says, hey, I would love to have your vineyard so that I could have a vegetable garden. Naboth is sort of like, no, it's part of my family. Um, so Ahab and Jezebel decide to trick him, and they kill him. And then they take his vineyard for their vegetable garden, which again is a little uh, inconsistent with, with who he is supposed to be. And then we get to our passage today that is this beautiful interplay between truth and deception, and true prophecy, and false prophecy. The ability to choose to hear what is true in light of the deception that is surrounding you. And I would say it's less about God being deceitful and more about an opportunity to listen. It's more about an opportunity to choose to hear what is true, and it's more about a warning. And I'm not sure if you have ever sensed yourself in one of those moments where you were surrounded by truth and deception and you had to choose what is true. So friends, a real life story. Um, many of you know uh, that I just finished seminary and it's been a 10 year journey to get here. Um, and so I want to share with you a little part of the story that I don't uh, like sharing very much, and it has to do with my identity as a leader. So growing up, I was always the shy girl, the back right corner girl, who hated being in front of people, and I would find myself, more often than not, invited into these positions of being in front of people, and I hated it. <laughs> I thought it was terrible. And so this identity I wrapped myself in. I'm not a leader. I don't have what it takes, is what I was bringing into this process of applying for seminary and, and, and doing all of this. So my plan when I began that process was to do spiritual formation, one-on-one -on -one stuff. I'm good at that. And more and more and more, as I applied and I do these interviews with people, they all said, no, Jenna, no. You are masters of divinity. You are a leader. There's this scholarship that's a full ride. We think you would be great for it, and the stipulation is that you become a pastor. And so as I was trying to discern and wrestle through what that looked like, I remember sitting in my car, that's where you do your best thinking, right? Alone in your car. And I remember feeling this overwhelming anxiety 
internally. And I could not shake what I was hearing. You are not a leader. That is not who you are. Don't take these people's money. You are not a leader. And yet all of these voices around me were saying, Jenna, you have it. You have what it takes. And in that moment, I would say I was caught between truth and deception, needing to choose what was true. And I would say Ahab is in this moment as well. So to explain that, what I want to do is just summarize key movements in the text. The passage starts with a question. Ahab asks his officials and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we're doing nothing to retake it, which is true. A few chapters back, there was a treaty in which this land became a part of the territory, and they just hadn't um, entered the land yet. Jehoshaphat is cool with it, but he says, hey, let's do what we're supposed to do and ask Yahweh first. So to do that, Ahab gathers 400 of his prophets and asks the question, and they're all like, yes, go, you'll be victorious, the Lord will give it to you. And this really subtle thing in the text happens. Um, if you notice sometimes in your English Bibles, when you see the name Lord, sometimes you'll see it all capital letters, and then other times you'll see capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And that's because there are two different Hebrew words being used. So when you see all capitals, it's Yahweh, the proper name of God. Uh, I will be what I will be is what it translates to. And when you see uh, capital L, lowercase, uh, the word is Adonai, which is still a reference to the divine, but it is not the proper name of God. And so when Jehoshaphat isn't sort of buying it and he asks the question, um, but don't you have any prophets of Yahweh? I think that's why he suspects that something is off. And Ahab's response floors me. He says, there is one prophet, but I hate him because he only prophesies what is bad about me and never what is good. What does it mean to value more what you want to hear versus what is true? Ahab is not the first person who has valued that and sought counsel from those who will tell him what he wants to hear, and he's certainly not the last. So the messenger goes to get Micaiah and says, hey, this is what happened. Uh, make sure you just say what they're saying, then we're good. He encounters Ahab, Ahab asks the question, and Micaiah says, go, you will be victorious. Yahweh will give it into your hands. Okay, so Micaiah says what Yahweh told him to say. He says exactly what the messenger asked him to say. He says exactly what Ahab wanted to hear. If the story ended here as readers, we would be like, okay, cool, Ahab's going, he's gonna be victorious. But this is where everything changes. Ahab responds with a question that I would say alters the entire story. 
How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? Ahab knows he was deceived. He's asking for the truth. It's as if he knows that the 400 prophets who told him to go and that he would be victorious we're not saying what's true. It is like he knows Micaiah is a truth teller. It's like he knows and he can see the deception in the moment. And so then Micaiah tells him the truth. Hey, Israel will be scattered. Israel's shepherd will die, which translated, shepherd is referring for king. Ahab, if you go forward, you will die and your nation will be scattered. And then all of a sudden, as a reader, it's like we are plucked out of that narrative and we are all of a sudden in the throne room of God. And this is the whole weird conversation God has about the spirits, about who will go and entice Ahab and who will go um, essentially make sure he dies. So as a reader, we all of a sudden have the backstory about why the prophets were saying what they were why Micaiah was saying what he said. So we have this backstory, and it's all because Ahab asked for what is true. You may be thinking, fair enough, Jenna, but you are still not dealing with the fact that, that God is being deceptive. Touche. And to that, I would ask a question. What if this whole thing happened for Ahab to choose what is good? What if this whole incident was about giving Ahab an opportunity to choose what is true instead of the deception that is around him? What if it was a warning and not a decree about Ahab's death? I think we tend to understand the prophets as future tellers, which in some sense, that, that's an element to it. But we forget the point of the language and the words used in the prophets. Um, so you may have encountered at some point uh, weird language and, and it seems a little intense, but friends, the point of that language is to evoke a response. The point of that language is to motivate and catalyze change, repentance. Turn, you are going this way, you hear the word, and you turn around. That is the point of the words. So I would say it's a prophetic word in a future-telling sense here that's saying, Ahab, if you go to battle, you will die. If. But Ahab has the power to choose if he goes. God is not making that decision. And can I remind us all that, that the point of this entire story is for Ahab to be seeking counsel for discernment on the decision that he makes. And so what if here, Ahab has a choice and he is fully empowered to make that choice and hear the warning of God. And before you accuse me of inserting my own theological assumptions about God's sovereignty and free will, 
I'm actually making this argument on the basis of what immediately precedes it. Literally the paragraph before. So if you have your Bibles, it'll also be up on the screen. Turn to 1 Kings 21, starting in seven, verse 17. Um, to bring you up to speed, we're back at the vegetable garden murder. Um, and uh, Ahab goes to take the land and encounters the prophet Elijah. So starting in 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and Bashah, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. Skip down to 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. God has mercy. What was spoken before about Ahab's death will no longer happen. He changed. He turned around. And so it is to say that, that, yes, when you kill a guy and steal his land, there are still going to be consequences. And yet, you have seen your wrongdoing and you have turned around. Things happen when you turn around. God is merciful. And that mercy will always trump a word of judgment. Elijah's word was to evoke that response. And so what if it is still true, even in this weird text, that God is merciful and that God is good and that God is not deceitful? But instead, the deceit that we encounter in this passage is in light of the fact that Ahab and his wife deceived a man into his death so they could take his land. What if the deceit that God is bringing to him is to help Ahab see the deceit in himself? This is going to kill you if you keep running towards it. Can you, can you see? I'm speaking, saying out loud what is true. Can you hear? Can you hear? I would submit to you that what is happening in this passage 
describes some of what happens in the spiritual life. Ahab has this hardness of heart his whole life to God. The prophets, the truth-telling prophets, are his enemies. And if you, if you look at his life through the book of Kings, you see this mixture of gross and, and evil and um, deceit. And then these moments of clarity. And God is there through all of it. The word of God through the prophets comes over and over and over again to this man. And finally, as readers, we come to this moment where, where he sees and he turns around and we hope that it ends there. But it doesn't. A moment later, Ahab is caught in truth and deceit, needing to make a decision. Ahab, will you be the faithful king of Yahweh, the anointed one? Or Ahab, will you be power hungry and deceitful and move forward doing something that is going to kill you? So is it possible that God does not seek to deceive Ahab, but instead God comes to warn us when we are traveling down roads that will lead us to our death? And friends, I would say more often than not, we know deep, deep down what is true. Can you finally hear what you know is true? Can you hear that it is time to put the bottle down? That using booze to cope with pain and suffering and boredom in your life is going to bring you to your death. Can you hear that this relationship you are in is toxic and you are losing yourself bit by bit? Can you hear that it is time to forgive because the unforgiveness and bitterness is like a cancer to your soul? Can you finally hear that you are loved and that you are enough and wrapping yourself in that self-hatred is not going to help you become the person Jesus wants you to be. Can you hear that there is a God who wants relationship, who wants you, who tells you that you belong and I have claimed you and, and we are sitting together as people who have been claimed by a God who loves us? Can you hear? And can you turn away from the things that tell us otherwise and look into the face of God? That face of God looks like mercy. Can you look into the face of love and belonging? Can you look into the face of freedom and grace? I'd like to invite John Mark and the band forward. As we transition to this next part, um, we're going to take a few moments of silence um, to give you time to reflect, uh, to give God time to say what I didn't. Um, and after that, you will be invited into song, uh, invited to receive those words, how you'd like to receive them. 
Our prayer team is available, so if you feel uh, you want someone to bear witness to that, uh, we would be honored to do that. Pray with me. God, for the courage to hear what is true. Thank you that you are a God that never stops pursuing and loving and speaking. Help us to receive that fully. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, go in the knowledge that you have deeply received this grace. And as we receive it, we go and give it to others. Grace and peace, my friends. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakeningcommunity or on Twitter at awakeningcommunity. See you next time.